Hello, and thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter, here with my friend, Dr. Susanna Greer. Hi, Susanna. Hey there, Joe. Uh, you just got off the phone with Dr. Dorothy Sipkins. She's an associate professor of medicine in Duke University's um, Division of Hematologic Malignancies and Cellular Therapy. Um, we asked her to talk with us because she's a two-time ACS grantee who's doing some really cool work trying to bring discoveries closer to patients, taking our research from bench to bedside. So what did you think? Oh, wow, Joe, this was a fun conversation. Dorothy is doing some really cool stuff. Her work focuses on understanding tissue microenvironments, which is a, a big couple of words for saying that there are different parts in our bodies where different cells go, normal cells, right? Healthy cells go to learn who's there, how do they carry out the functions they need to carry out um, to be a liver cell or a lung cell or whatever, where do they need to go? So, right, they, they go to these specific areas in the body and that's called a microenvironment. So what Dorothy studies is that cancer cells have this really naughty way of figuring out that these tissue microenvironments can help them grow too. So if you think about it, like you could think about microenvironments being like your house, right? And we'll use Joe as the example. So like Joe might go to his den to watch TV and Joe might go to the bathroom to brush your, his teeth. And then Joe might go to the kitchen to scramble an egg. But what if Joe wanted to hide from his family and eat a cookie? And there's only one cookie left. So you might go into even a more, you know, strategic microenvironment. You might go into the pantry to eat your cookie so nobody could see you with crumbs all over your face. I know you do this, Joe. So the interesting and quite frankly terrifying thing about cancer cells is they do the same thing. They find these microenvironments that help them to grow and to metastasize. And Dorothy is studying a specific kind of blood cancer called um, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And these cells are especially terrible because the microenvironment that they enjoy, the place where they really grow super well and can metastasize to so move to other parts of the body is the central nervous system. Now, this is terrifying and terrible because it's really hard to treat cancer once it gets into the central nervous system. So Dorothy's lab was asking some really incredible questions about, quite frankly, how do these cells do this? How do they move into the central nervous system? The central nervous system is a safe space, right? It's a place where we don't get infections. Um, so Dorothy's trying to understand and made a really pivotal discovery about how these cells move into the central nervous system and is now working to pioneer some treatments about how to uh, prevent this from happening. So I'm not going to ruin the surprise. I'll let you learn how these cells do their naughty. And um, I think you'll really enjoy hearing from Dorothy. Good morning, Dorothy. How are you? Great. Well, thank thanks you so much for joining us. We're Super excited to hear today from you. Um, all right, let's kick things off. So I, I want to get into your research, but first of all, you're going to have to help us understand 
what is a tissue microenvironment and why should we yeah. be uh, concerned about tissue microenvironments? That's right. It's a criti critical piece to understand. Um, so every tissue and organ in the body is actually made up of a unique combination of cells and the, the factors, protein factors that these cells secrete. So, for example, the, the bone marrow, which is the tissue I, I have studied for many years, and it's the site where the organ, where the body forms all the blood cells. Uh, it doesn't just contain the blood stem cells, which, which create the maturing blood cells of, the, of our blood system. It also contains fat cells, different types of bone forming and bone destroying cells, nerve cells, blood vessel cells, and, and more. And each of these cells actually secretes a, a unique set of proteins. And these can be soluble factors, so factors that kind of dissolve into the local environment. And these are used for both local communications and then distant com communications. So for example, hormones uh, that get into the bloodstream and go off distantly. And they also secrete what we call matrix factors. And these are proteins that provide structure, or you can think of this as a scaffolding for the cells in the tissue. And what, what's really um, important about this scaffolding is that these matrix factors are also another way for cells to signal to each other. So cells in this microenvironment, uh, or niche as we call it, uh, express a, a variety of different cell surface receptors. And these are kind of like the, the lock and key. Um, so these are the keys that allow them to sense or identify these um, factors, the lock, uh, and respond when they, when they join together. Um, it allows them to respond to the other cell types that they encounter um, and respond to the these different factors, identify them, sense them, and respond to these different factors that they encounter them. Let me just interrupt to make sure I understand. So it sounds sure. like the you kind of described the microenvironment or a tissue microenvironment as being a specific location where um, and the example, one example you gave is the bone marrow. And to use not so elegant terms, there's a lot of stuff going on and all of these things that are in these different tissue microenvironments are really helpful for cells, helps them to talk mm -hmm. to each other, helps them to understand kind of, I guess, maybe what to do and when to do it. Does that sound reasonable? Absolutely, yeah. And so these, these signals, they activate these internal programs in the cells, and those programs control whether these cells multiply, um, whether they, they mature or stay immature, whether they, they move, migrate, and in case of a cancer cell, metastasize, or whether they even uh, undergo what we call this pro program cell death and, and uh, basically die, commit suicide. So these are really important signals. Um, and when we talk about microenvironments, so we talk about a tissue, so each tissue is its own microenvironment, but within each tissue, there's also this um, organization of actually multiple different microenvironments within that tissue. So there's incredible layers of complexity and organization, and that kind of, com that complexity and organization is what allows um, these cells to respond differently to different situations in different places. Um, so it's, it's actually this amazingly beautiful and, and complex way that these um, cells in our body carry out their, their functions. 
That's awesome. So it sounds like if we were to think about a cell, maybe as like a person who's hanging out in their house and you would know that if you go into your closet, maybe it's time to change clothes. Or if you go into the bathroom, it's time to brush your teeth. Or if you go into the kitchen, maybe time to fry an egg. So it sounds like one of the things that you said was that a tissue microenvironment controls what's happening to cells. So if that's the case, if we can agree on that, then, and you said these different types of tissue and microenvironments are crucially important for normal cells. So maybe Mm -hmm, tell us mm -hmm. how these different microenvironments can be important for cancer cells. Right. So, so yes, just as you said, they, they are really important for normal cells, um, for particularly one population of normal cell, the, the stem cell that makes all the you know, other different types of cells in our body. The, its local microenvironment um, helps protect it from, from toxins, for example, from different types of cell stress. Um, and, um, it, and it also tells them how many, how many of your cells to make. Okay. So it definitely it controls the normal cells in this way. So it turns out that cancer cells, they actually, we found out uh, in our lab and other labs have found out through years of research that they have this tendency to basically steal from or copy the way that normal cells respond to their microenvironment. And so in similar ways that the microenvironment controls um, whether or not a normal cell is, is going to move or divide or, or die, that cancer cell also steals from that interaction. And so, for example, I told you the microenvironment is very important to protect a stem cell from, from stressors or toxins, um, basically because you, you can't let your stem cells die. Um, so cancer cells, they, they hijack these programs, and they actually can be protected by the uh, microenvironment in similar ways that stem cells are protected by the microenvironment through these interactions um, that basically activate what we call anti-cell death or anti-apoptotic programs in the cell that essentially allow them to weather various storms and stresses without dying. So that's just one example, one way that um, cancer cells can kind of profit from from these microenvironments and the signaling that um, regulates normal cells. So that's really cool. I mean, it's cool slash terrifying that yes. <laughs> cancer cells yeah. have seen these different tissue and microenvironments and some of the great things they provide. I mean, I think um, probably the, the best word you use was protection, right? Protection to do whatever it is that the cancer cell might next want to do. So if, if that's the case, I I want to drill down a little bit into one specific area of expertise you have because it's absolutely fascinating. So you had what was a incredibly uh, impressive publication last year in the journal Nature. It was focused on a specific type of leukemia, so acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which is just a tough disease. And mm-hmm. one of the questions that not only you but lots of people have asked for a long time is how do these acute lymphoblastic leukemia cells, so we call this ALL. So how do these specific ALL cells move into the tissue microenvironment where they seem to specifically really want to hang out and they're mm-hmm. really hard to treat there? And mm-hmm. um, 
that environment is the central nervous system. So before right. we talk about that, I think we need to back up just a second. So we, you've already laid the groundwork that tissue microenvironments are really elegant. Um, they're necessary for normal cells to develop and to communicate with each other. Um, they can be taken hostage kind of by cancer cells. And, mm -hmm. it, and I guess different cancer cells are going to have different tissue and microenvironments where they're like, yeah, this feels great. We can do some really terrible things here. So for ALL, help us to understand why, when this happens, when ALL moves into the central nervous system, why is this such a problem? And then maybe we can talk about your observations of how this actually, this movement happens. But let's talk right. about why is this a challenge to treat? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's it's a terrible problem for, for multiple reasons. So so one, as you say, it, it's very challenging to treat. So the central nervous system, the, the brain, is one of what we call the sanctuary sites in the body. Um, it is hard for many of our therapeutics, current therapeutics, to penetrate the central nervous system, to cross what's called the blood brain barrier, and we can talk about that a little more in, in, a, in a minute, but it's, it's hard to get a lot of therapeutic agents into the CNS at effective levels. So that's one thing that makes it, it tough. Because of the location of ALL, uh, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, in the central nervous system, um, and that being that where it loves to grow in the CNS is actually in the, the uh, cerebral spinal fluid or the, uh, the lining of the brain and the spinal cord. So we have these tissues that's called the meninges, which actually cover the surface of our brain and all the way down around our spinal cord. And that's, that's actually the place where we see the ALL cells um, growing or metastasizing to in people. Um, and within these meninges is where the spinal fluid is located. And so to treat patients with CNS ALL, um, what we do to get around this issue of, um, of the blood-brain barrier and the, the sanctuary site problem is that we actually in, inject chemotherapies into the spinal fluid um, through through the back, um, kind of like a, a, if you're familiar with the concept of a spinal tap, we're actually in, in, actually injecting uh, the treatments into the spinal fluid. So, you know, that obviously is, is not uh, pleasant. The, um, the treatments themselves, uh, especially when we give them to, to kids whose nervous systems are developing, they can be toxic to the developing nervous system. Um, and so, you know, there's limits to how much of these uh, treatments you can give. Another thing we use is radiation, and, and um, radiation oncologists will actually can irradiate the whole brain and, and spinal cord. Um, but this also is, is quite toxic, and again, particularly to a developing nervous system. So, so that makes it a, a really tough problem on multiple levels. Um, and the other thing is that ALL cells, they love to metastasize to the to the CNS. If in fact, so because they love to go there, everybody who's diagnosed with ALL gets what we call prophylactic treatment of the CNS. So this um, uh, chemotherapy and sometimes radiation therapy, chemotherapy into the spinal fluid um, as a prophylactic treatment. Um, because if we don't 
prophylax, we know that more than half of all ALL patients will actually develop CNS metastases. So, um, so all these reasons make it a, a challenging issue. Um, and because everyone has to get this preventative treatment of the CNS, you know, any way that we can come up with to um, potentially improve that treatment, you know, decrease um, the relapses, which even with this preventative treatment, it's 5 to 10% of patients who will have a relapse in the central nervous system. Um, anything that we can do to make this better, um, would, you know, it's really a, what we call an area of unmet clinical need. So how, how do these cells do it? Why is ALL right. so smart? You know, how do they get around um, this blood-brain barrier? To me, it sounds like kind of Red Rover, Red Rover, where we all played as a kid, where if you had a giant kid on your team, you'd send them over to blast through the line of kids holding hands. So what is ALL doing that is so, um, I guess, sneaky maybe to get around the blood-brain barrier, which protects uh, what you called this sanctuary site and, and so effectively manages to, you know, kind of uh, find the appropriate or, or the tissue microenvironment that ALL really wants to grow in. So what was your big discovery? So I mentioned to you that, that already we talked a lot about how cancer cells have this tendency to, to steal from or hijack programs and, and pathways that normal cells use. So when we first approached this problem, we thought, well, we hypothesized that, okay, ALL cells, they're probably stealing the same molecular programs that normal lymphocytes use to get into CNFs because, because normal lymphocytes can do that. So, so then we said, okay, well, how do normal lymphocytes do this? What molecules are they using? So uh, normal lymphocytes, they are in our bloodstream. They circulate through the blood vessels, the vasculature. Um, as you know, the blood vessels go to every tissue in our body, and that includes the brain and the CNS. And when you have an infection or inflammation, the blood vessels in a tissue actually help your white blood cells to latch on to the walls of the blood vessel in that area, because um, normally the white blood cells are just zooming through the bloodstream very quickly. And they can latch on to the wall of the blood vessel by recognizing what are called cell adhesion molecules. Um, that are expressed by the blood vessel cell. So they latch onto these, and then they squeeze themselves through the wall of the blood vessel. Um, now, we already talked about the blood blood brain barrier, the blood vessels in the CNS, are, they really provide this very special tight barrier. And it's very hard for not only cells, but small molecules to squeeze through this barrier. So despite this normal lymphocytes, they latch on and they squeeze through. So, so we thought, okay, um, leukemia, actually in Greek, leukemia means white blood. There are, and what that means is that there are tons of leukemic cells that are typically in, in patients who are just diagnosed, we see lots of leukemic cells circulating in the bloodstream. And so we thought, well, naturally there there's lots of them circulating through the bloodstream. Um, they're the malignant counterpart to the lymphocyte. They're going to invade the central nervous system by stealing this program that I that I just told you about and cross the blood-brain barrier. So then we spent a lot of time looking in, we have these animal models of leukemia in the laboratory, and we also have this pro approach um, that we use to study uh, cancer in the laboratory. It's called intravital microscopy 
microscopy. And it's a technique that actually allows us to use lasers to a special microscope um, with lasers that can detect fluorescent dyes on cells. Uh, and with this special microscope, we can actually image through tissues. And in real time, you know, video rate, um, we can track the movements of cells. So when we looked at blood vessels in the brains of these mice that had ALL, we could actually see these cancer cells circulating through the blood vessels in the brain and in the, in the blood vessels that are in the meninges. And we could see them rushing through. We could also see them latching on to the blood vessel wall. But what we weren't able to see, despite looking for hours and then for days and then weeks later, we weren't, we weren't able to see them squeezing through the blood vessel, crossing the blood-brain barrier, and entering the tissue. And so we, we said, whoa, we're, we're missing something. Um, it, it, we're not going at this the right way. And we actually put down the project for, for a number of years because we just didn't know how to approach it. So then what happened was something that was actually kind of fortuitous, and that was we started collaborating with a pharmaceutical company, and they wanted to know, because uh, they knew we studied ALL and had these animal models, and they had a simple question, which is, well, could you test this drug in your mouse models and see if it might be effective for ALL and treat ALL in the, the bone marrow of, of your mice? And we said, okay, that's simple for us to do. So we started treating our mice that have ALL. And our mice were um, living longer. Mm -hmm. And we said, wow, this is great. But what was really, really kind of made me stop was my postdoc, Hisa Yao, uh, who is actually a physician scientist um, who's now um, who trained with me and now has returned to Japan where he has his own independent um, work. So he came back from the mouse house and he said, you know, uh, these mice are living longer. And when I euthanize them, it it's not because they're paralyzed. It's because they they have so much bone marrow disease that I have to euthanize them. So the the cells couldn't do the thing that you told us they really wanted to do. These ALL cells in the mice couldn't find their right tissue microenvironment. Is that exactly. right? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And so, so at that moment, we thought, oh my goodness. So now we have something that we didn't have for years, and that was a tool that we use in the lab to try and dissect apart this mystery. And we had a tool that would stop the process, and then we figured, you know, if we can stop it, we can figure out why it's happening. But there was still a lot of steps along the way. So we, so this this drug, as I mentioned, it wasn't. It wasn't really affecting the amount of disease that the mice had in the bone marrow. And so that, that told us, well, it, it, it's either doing one of two things. One, it's a drug that's actually able to cross the blood-brain barrier, and the, the cells in the CNS are really sensitive to it. Or two, it's actually very specifically preventing them from metastasizing there. And so we did these studies to look at whether or not the drug was getting into the brains of the mice, and we found out, no, it's, it's not doing that. And so that left us with, wow, very specifically, it's preventing the migration. So at that point, you know, I told you we'd done all these studies looking at cells cross, trying, trying to see these cells cross the blood-brain barrier and failing. And so we thought, well, we don't even 
know where to start. So we did what scientists frequently do when you have a tool, but you still have no idea where to go next. And that is we did what's called a screen where we treated mice with the drug or we treated them with a, a placebo, basically. Um, and then we harvested cells, uh, the leukemic cells from the bone marrow and the brain of the mice. And we compared what are called transcripts or basically the signaling molecules and that are controlled or affected by the drug and looked at basically hundreds and hundreds of them uh, across these, these treated and untreated samples to see, okay, what is the drug affecting in these cells that could potentially affect their migration to the CNS? So we were looking for clues. And when we looked at targets of the drug that were really affected, we saw one that really stood out to us. And it was this um, receptor, a cell surface receptor called alpha-6 integrin. And so, so why did that stand out? Um, well, it, it didn't stand out initially. It stood out after I did some more reading about it, and I kind of focused in on it because as, years ago when I was a graduate student, I did work studying this, this family of molecules, cell surface receptors called integrins, um, and they actually uh, are really important for normal white blood cell interaction with blood vessels. So I already kind of knew that integrins were this really cool family of molecules when when it comes to white blood cells interacting with blood vessels. So, but I didn't know anything about alpha-6 integrin in particular. So I went and read more about it. When I read more about it, I was really fascinated because alpha-6 integrin binds to a very specific molecule called laminin. And where is laminin expressed? Well, laminin is expressed, it, well, first of all, laminin is one of these matrix molecules in the microenvironment that I described to you. And it's a uh, matrix molecule that's found in a very specific place. And that's basically coding or wrapping around what we call the basement membrane of a blood vessel. So it's this out external outside coding uh, around blood vessels in very special places. And what are some of those very special places? The bone marrow and the central nervous system, the brain and the meninges in particular. So, so that really perked me up when I saw that. And then I started reading more, and I, and I realized that there was this whole literature about how alpha-6, when it's expressed by neural stem cells in development, when your brain is developing, it's, it's critical for neural stem cells to migrate to correct places in the brain when the brain's developing. And they do that by actually tracking along laminin, latching on, using this alpha-6 receptor, latching onto laminin on the outside of blood vessels and basically crawling along the blood vessel like a, like a, a scaffold, a highway, a, a zip line, and, right. and getting to their right place. So then I thought, gosh, this can't all be a coincidence. Something's there. Um, but we were still incredibly perplexed because we're like, well, we, we look and we look and we never see them interacting with this laminin at the blood-brain barrier in the, when we look you know, in the, for them in circulation. So what are we missing? 
so that's when I kind of went back to um, anatomy class, back to, to med school, if you will. And I, I said, let me go look and, and, and really understand better the vasculature of the meninges. And when I did that, I realized something that, because you, you can't learn every single detail of anatomy in med school, you just don't have that kind of time for that, um, and anatomy is incredibly complex, but I learned something that I'd never recognized before, and that is that there are blood vessels that are in the bone marrow that's inside our skulls, um, and the skull is adjacent to the brain, um, and that are inside the, the, um, our vertebrae, the bones that make up our spinal col column. And the vertebrae are adjacent to the spinal cord, which is covered by the meninges. And there are blood vessels in the bone marrow that actually exit the bone, uh, the vertebrae or the skull bone. They exit it through these little holes like portholes. They exit it and they connect through these portholes directly to the meninges and the, the cerebral spinal fluid cavity uh, mm -hmm. within the meninges. They are, they are basically one and the same. On one side in the bone marrow, they're bone marrow vessels. And when they go through that porthole, on the other side, they emerge as leptomeningeal blood vessels, so CNS vessels. And they are basically this fast track, this direct communication between the bone marrow where leukemic cells live and the brain or the spinal cord or the lining of the brain in the spinal cord where we know that the ALL cells get to. So when, when we realized that, we said, oh my goodness, could this could they actually be just doing the most efficient, nasty, terrifying thing possible, which is not bothering to exit the bone marrow and go into the bloodstream and then, you know, take their time to squeeze through this blood-brain barrier wall. Maybe they're just latching on to the outside of these blood vessels. They're called emissary vessels. They're coated with laminin on the outside, latching onto that laminin-like glue and then walking uh, across that the the outside of of these um, blood vessels directly from the bone marrow to the CNS, um, basically like, like ninja ninja warriors, um, and and so then we then we went back to back to our mouse models and we actually dissected out the the, the vertebral column and we did all these little very thin sections of tissue across the the spinal cord and the bone uh, vertebrae intact and we looked for these these little portholes and the vessels connecting or connecting the bone marrow and the, the CNS and we actually we, we found them we spotted them looking underneath the, the through the microscope we could actually see these uh, in these tissue sections we could see these leukemic cells squeezing their way through these bony channels and going directly um, you know in the matter of a, a few cell lengths between the bone marrow and and the CNS. So that's fantastic. You did it. I mean, that's just, that's an amazing story of understanding the desire of ALL to head to a tumor specific tissue microenvironment and then kind of back tracing how they might do it. And then 
I think kind of going, it sounds like against your gut, against all your training, the things you would have thought about how these cells might do it and, and following the data. So I, I think the question our listeners would probably really want to know is, so what do you do next now that you know how these ALL cells enter into um, this uh, really lovely uh, central nervous system environment where these cells can grow? How do you stop it? Right. No, exactly. So that is exactly what we want to do next. And we're trying to figure out in the lab now the the, the best drug, the best tool, the best way to basically in just just inhibit this process and we've done it in the mice and we want to um, to translate that to our patients. So I just have two more follow-up questions and then I'll let you get back to this important work. I'd love to know how the ACS impacted some of this research. Oh yeah! Oh my goodness! I so last night I spoke at um, at a, a ACS fundraising kickoff event, and I told them before I spoke that um, that I was going to share with them my ode to the the ACS because I'm so indebted to this wonderful organization. Um, and so you know there there are many as you know there are so many different levels at which the ACS works, you know in, in people's homes, in the clinic, in government, and also in funding. Um, really fundamental research, uh, so many ways that ACS works to battle cancer. And for me as a, a researcher, um, the programs that ACS funds, uh, for me specifically uh, a research scholar grant award, which is an award for uh, junior independent scientists who are basically trying to um, get past that make or break time in a young scientist's right. life where you, you need to get funding for your ideas, your ideas are still untested, and you're competing at the same time for really limited funds on the governmental level. And so foundations like ACS that offer support um, to young researchers at that time in their careers um, is so essential. And ACS uh, offered me that uh, award and support at that time that really helped, I have to say, to keep my lab doors open. And so I'm eternally grateful for them for that. All right, Dorothy, I have one final question. You are... A researcher and an oncologist, so you see patients and um, undoubtedly are incredibly driven by what you do. A lot of our listeners are patients. Um, I would love to know if you have a specific message to share with patients or their families, um, folks that love them. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, you're going to make me tear up. <laughs> um, I I would say for all of our patients, you know, they're the most important thing, and I, I think patients will tell you this too, uh, really the most important thing is is keeping keeping the hope alive. And hope can mean many different things, again, on many different levels. So sometimes, you know, obviously the biggest hope for all our patients is hope for a cure. Um, but, you know, even when they're at, at least at that point in time, they're there, we feel there's no hope for a cure necessarily. There's hope for, um, you know, as much time as possible, or there's hope for the best quality of time as possible. There's hope for another birthday or a celebration. Um, and I, you know, we're all we're all keeping that hope alive, and we're working so hard to, you know, make a difference. And I think, um, you know, everything that people do in supporting the ACS makes a difference for that hope. On as I told you, so many different levels. I spend most of my time in the lab, and that's so rewarding on an intellectual level and gratifying um, and exciting. Um, and then when I'm in the clinic and seeing patients and seeing the 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 love. 
that uh, goes on, um, and, you know, the families, the support, um, and how in the struggle, um, often we see it brings out the absolute best in people and their families. And so seeing that and sharing in that is something I'm also grateful for. So, Oh, well, Dorothy, we're so excited about what you're doing and you bring hope to um, so many people. So thanks to you, to your colleagues and to your lab and, and best of luck um, as you continue. We'll be in touch. Okay. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye.